0: Good evening. I would just extend Danny's welcome again to you, especially if you're a visitor with us. I wonder if you've ever been to a stag do or a hen do, or even worse, had to go to your own. They're always a slightly strange event, aren't they? You've got different groups of people there, and we're all only linked by knowing the, the one man or the one woman at the center of it all, and it can be a bit strange. But it's even more than awkward if over the course of that event, it it becomes clear that that the stag or the hen is is a very different person with one group of friends than perhaps they are with another. Perhaps uh, the young man's work friends are looking for him to engage in some lewd banter that they're used to from him at work, and his church friends look on and think, goodness, I never saw that in him. And that you you slowly realize over the course of that event that perhaps there's more than one person inhabiting that same body. And that's a common theme in in popular culture and in media as well, isn't it? This idea of of reconciling the different parts of ourselves. The the film Shang-Chi last year, one of the, the Marvel films, the central character in that has to accept that he has both parts of his mother and parts of his father in him, and he has to bring those to unity to move forwards. Well, I think if I suggested that as a good illustration for his epistle, James would throw the parchment in my face, because that is the exact opposite of what James has been telling us to do. Perhaps if you've seen Superman 3, you'll remember that scene where Superman is given some synthetic kryptonite, and he splits eventually into two, a good and a bad, and it's clear that one of them has to be destroyed. The two cannot coexist. That is what James is challenging us with in this letter. There is not room for two people in the one body. You must live your lives consistent with the gospel truth that you have received. With, with the life that you now live in Christ. These remnants of your old life must go. And James is going to continue that theme which he has carried through this whole book this evening. So let's read what he has to say, starting in chapter 3 and at verse 13. Um, with me, please. Who is wise and understanding among you? Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the Scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us, but he gives more grace? Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, May God bless his word to us, and I'd encourage you, if you have a Bible or open in front of you on your phone or in paper, keep it open, and we're going to work through this passage together this evening, and try and tease out a little bit of, of what's going on in James's mind as he writes these words. That second half of chapter 3, James is still talking to teachers, just as he was about the tongue, but as Ben reminded us this morning, while he's directing it at teachers, The application carries beyond them and, in fact, to each of us. So we don't get a free pass tonight if you're not a teacher. And he moves then from from talking about the tongue and the danger of the tongue to discussing this idea of wisdom and understanding. And, in fact, we find if we flick back to chapter 1, wisdom was one of the first things that James introduces in this letter— Wisdom is one of those words that we all sort of know what it means and don't quite know what it means and don't want to have to define it. One person defined it as skill in the art of living, an ability to navigate the challenges of day-to-day life, particularly our interactions with other people. In some ways, it even incorporates what we would call a worldview, a way of looking at the world, a way of thinking about things, a way of coming at them and addressing them. That is wisdom. Wisdom. And James, in in these first few verses, he shows us sort of two types of wisdom, doesn't he? He shows us, we're going to say wisdom from above, and I think equally fair to say wisdom or a way of looking at things from below. So let's think about those for a minute. First of all, where where do these two types of wisdom come from? Well, the wisdom from below, he tells us very plainly, doesn't he? He says it's earthly. It's earthly. earthly. It comes from the things around us here, perhaps uh, from friends or or colleagues, perhaps from the way you were brought up and your family ethos and the way you were raised to look at things and manage things, perhaps uh, from the way the world is presented to us in the media, from the way we're told uh, that the world should be, perhaps as well from, from the education system, from the way that we're conditioned to look at the world. All of these things form earthly wisdom, it's it's wisdom from here, but James also says, doesn't he, that it's unspiritual ultimately. It's not a spiritual way of looking at the world, it's unspiritual and in fact, he goes further, doesn't he, as as James so often does, takes it that step beyond where we're comfortable and he says, in fact, this is demonic. We've seen in his letter, James James is not shy about tracing the origin of of seen problems with unseen spiritual realities. We heard that this morning. He says that tongue that's on fire was set on fire in hell. And so this wisdom from below is earthly, it's unspiritual, it's demonic. And contrast that, if you like, with the wisdom from above, Because in chapter 1, James says, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously without reproach. So one wisdom is from here, and one wisdom is a gift from above. How are are those two types of wisdom shown? How are they displayed? Well, the wisdom from here is displayed in boasting, isn't it? And we often see that, and, and we probably at times find ourselves doing that. The way of looking at the world in, in, in this earth and this planet is, is one where we're putting ourselves forward, one where we're having to always push, to strive, to gain, to get, to have. And so the natural outcome of that is it's displayed in boosting. James says, do not boost. But the wisdom from above is seen differently. It's not seen in words or great proclamations about ourselves. It's seen in our works seen in life. If you, have, if you are wise, if you have understanding, by His good conduct let Him show His works in the meekness of wisdom. So the wisdom from above is displayed by your lifestyle, not by your boasting about it. And it's interesting as well to think about where those two types of wisdom are pointing Because the wisdom from here, the wisdom from below is is pointing at ourselves, isn't it? James says it's marked by bitter jealousy and selfish ambition. One follows the other quite naturally. If we think this world is all that there is and this time that we have here is all that we have, we have to do everything we can to make it as good as possible for ourselves, to grasp and to take and to seek what we want And that selfish ambition is naturally the father of jealousy, isn't it? Because then we look at others who are doing better at that game, and we feel jealous about it. Whereas the wisdom from above, ultimately, as we'll see in what it produces, it's orientated towards others, at the very least towards a mutual care. It affects how how we care for those around us. It works towards others, not towards ourselves. And that's exactly what we want to think about. Well, what do these two types of wisdom produce? What do, what do they create? Well, the wisdom from below—it's a fairly grim picture, isn't it? Where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. The wisdom from here does not create a, a humanitarian utopia. It creates disorder. Creates chaos. What does the wisdom from above create? Well, we see this wonderful list, don't we? First of all, it's pure. And then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy, good fruits, impartial, and sincere. Just look at how many of those deal with other people. Peaceable is always to do with an interaction with someone else. Gentle is to do with an interaction with someone else. Open to reason from someone else. Full of mercy towards someone else. That's what this wisdom from above produces. And James says, you've, you've, you've got these two wisdoms. You've got these two ways of looking at the world, of navigating the world, and you can't have them both. You can't hold them both in tension. And the application here for, for James in his mind is pretty clear, I suspect. He started by talking about not many of you who should become teachers. And he's going on to talk to those people about how they navigate the difficulties that they will find in that role, in the role of of leadership in a church. And yet it's an example for each of us as well, isn't it? James is calling for those who are teachers to inhabit the role of a, a shepherd, to have a caring and shepherd's heart. I had a sad conversation with a friend recently, and he said to me, um, he's a Christian. He said, do You know, I've never met a pastor teacher. He says, I've met pastors and I've met teachers, but I've never met a pastor teacher. And I don't believe that's true, but that is what James calls for, isn't it? He calls for someone who is a gentle shepherd. And yet, often those who rise to that sort of a role do so because of their forceful personality or their, their quick wit. And I think about one recent prominent evangelical figure. And he started as a young pastor, fiery preacher, church planter. And yet over time, his ministry became marked by harshness, hardness, anger, sharpness. He said, there's a, there's a pile of bodies behind this church bus, and by God's grace, it'll be a mountain. That is the wisdom that comes from below. That is not the wisdom that comes from above. James is picking up here again on on a theme that he started in chapter one. He says, the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. And this is where we have to stir ourselves up that this applies to all of us. As As a community here of people who support each other, We have to ask ourselves, well, what does nurture righteousness then? What does nurture that? And James tells us, he says, peace. A harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. And he's told us about the characteristics of those who make peace. Pure, and that's a recurring theme in James that we'll think about in a little minute. Peace-loving, peaceable. Gentle, it always strikes me that that was one of the characteristics of the Lord. One Paul highlighted at times as well, the gentleness of Christ, he would say. Open to reason, that idea of of being open to listening to the other person, to hearing what they have to say. In fact, it's stronger than that. It's nearly easily persuaded. It's this idea that, that you're inclined to hear what the other has to say and to really think about it and to really take it on board and really consider it full of mercy, and that mercy, mercy is really the opposite of the idea of vengeance, isn't it? Vengeance is whenever you've, you've got someone over a barrel, when you've got them dead to rights, when they've wronged you, and the moment comes, and you've got them in your sights. That's vengeance. But that's not the wisdom from above. The wisdom from above is marked by mercy and good fruits. It's impartial. Gives a fair hearing to each other. That's very hard for us to do sometimes. The wisdom from above nurtures impartiality. And that final word, I think, actually is probably unwavering. Nurtures wisdom like this, nurtures a character that is resolute and is settled. It's the opposite of that person that James has told us about who's driven and tossed by the wind like a wave. So here is a model of the characteristics that we seek, that the wisdom from above produces in us and is marked by it. You know, I had an example of this once myself years and years ago here in this church, and I was to open the breaking of bread, and I forgot, and I think I was working possibly. I certainly wasn't here, and I found several missed calls at quarter past ten, and I felt absolutely terrible. And I came to church that night, and the person who coordinated the rota um, was sitting in the kitchen, and they saw me, and I just wished the ground would swallow me up, because I thought, oh, my goodness, Um, this is the worst thing I have ever done. I'm going to get absolutely nailed to the wall here, and rightly so. This was terrible. And they beckoned me in, and they said, sit down a minute. Are you okay? Is everything all right? Did anything happen to you? And though it seems such a small thing, the gentleness of that moment has always stayed with me, that gentle, caring heart. That is what we seek towards each other, isn't it? That is how we nurture righteousness. It is soon in peace. Then James moves on, and and he poses his listeners this question. He says, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? What causes conflict? There's a a quote from the Spanish Civil War attributed to several people, possibly General Franco, and he's talking about the moment whenever they're marching on Madrid to attack Madrid, and he says there's there's four columns of troops marching on Madrid, but there's a fifth column lying in the city that's going to rise up and join us. And ever since that moment, the the idea of a fifth columnist has sort of entered our language. The idea of someone, a sleeper within a society, within a group, within a city, within the walls, who's working for the enemy or working for the other side, and who at the moment is going to rise up and support the forces that are outside. And your Bible probably titles this section something like a warning against worldliness, And we get that earthly wisdom of worldliness from our friends, from from the media, from everything around us, but James is saying there's a fifth column of worldliness lying within your own heart. It's lying inside you. What causes quarrels and what causes fights? It's that. So first of all, he says the, the conflict actually starts not between each other. It starts within your heart. The conflict is within us. He says, this, this, these two wisdoms, your passions are at war with you. And any of you who have young children will know. You can, you can see them whenever you tell them, don't, don't eat that biscuit now. We'll eat it after dinner. And the war within is just there. They don't want to displease their parent. They want to do the right thing. But they also really want to eat the biscuit. And you can see that struggle. Well, James says that's what's happening here. Your passions are at war within you. You're a believer. You're a Christian. You want to live and please the Lord, but there's still this part of you that has these earthly passions, these earthly desires. And those spill out of you then into your interaction with each other. So you fight and you quarrel. Why do you do it? Because you see somebody has something that you would really like and you don't have it. And so it becomes a source of conflict or it creates jealousy and jealousy leads to conflict. And again, you only have to look at children to see that. One picks up a toy and the other one wants it. They put it down and they don't want it. They want what the other has and it creates conflict. And James points to us and says, ultimately, you're not much better than those children squabbling over the Lego bricks. This jealousy and selfishness that you have, that you want for your own passions, this is causing conflict among you. But then James does something really interesting. He takes a step way back and nearly opens things up to this cosmic scale because suddenly he's gone from conflict between you and me to saying there's conflict between God and the world. There's this overarching conflict If you want to be a friend of the world, you're an enemy of God. He couldn't put it more plainly than that. The idea, we use the the word friend fairly lightly in our society, Uh, but back at the time this was written, friendship was a really deep thing, a, a really deep connection. It was a commitment to the other person. It was a shared, you would have shared aspirations and hopes, you would have shared ambitions, Uh, You would have shared desires. It was a really meaningful and deep connection. And so James is saying, you can't have that sort of friendship with the world and friendship with God. Can't have them both. In fact, he says, you're an adulterous people. And those of you who know your Bibles will know that that's really calling back, isn't it, to the Old Testament? To when God's people were so often referred to as adulterous. Because when they came into the promised land, it wasn't that they wanted to get rid of God completely. They didn't want to lose God. They just wanted to keep Him and keep some of the things in the world around them. They wanted to have them both. And that was adultery. James says that sort of friendship with the world isn't possible. These two things are in complete opposition. You cannot have both. There is God in His perfection and love and holiness, and there is the world in its selfishness and bitterness and rivalry. Those two cannot be brought in under the one roof. And James is making clear to them they still have some of that selfish ambition and jealousy within them because he challenges them. He says, you're you're desiring and coveting what you cannot have. You're thinking just like the world. You're thinking just like people who just want things. And then you see someone else in the assembly who does have it. You see someone else in the fellowship who does have it, and, and you fight with them. He even says, you murder. I think that's hyperbole. I think he's exaggerating for the sake of effect, but he's really driving the point home, isn't he? This is causing conflict. Your worldly outlook on things, your worldly desires are causing conflict with each other. This world is very self-centered, self-determining, self-promoting. Power, money, pleasure are probably the three things that this world tells us we should be seeking. Get more, control more, enjoy more. No friendship with that, says James. Friendship with that is enmity with God. And so from that cosmic conflict, come right back down into your very hearts, James says. Your passions are at war within you. And it's interesting, just as we think about how to apply this as well to our lives, how James drives that point home because he he starts to talk about their prayer lives, which is strange. He says, you don't don't get because you don't ask. And when you do ask, you don't get because you ask wrongly. You ask to spend it on your own passions. Perhaps we, we don't ask for things because we know that we would be ashamed to ask God for it. Perhaps those things that we desire day in and day out, we don't really bring in prayer because we'd be ashamed to say to God, I'd really love that, that nicer car. Perhaps I'd really hope that man and work would give me that second glance that my husband doesn't give me anymore. Those desires aren't things we bring to God in prayer. That's a bit of an alarm sign to James. And then he says, even worse than that, or even further than that, even when you do ask, you don't get, because things that could be legitimate, things that could be reasonable, you're asking for selfish reasons, for your own passion. That word passion is not a positive word. It's not a passion for something that's reasonable, has probably a sexual undertone in that world so even things that may be legitimate, they're, they're to be spent on our own passions. Maybe we want that nicer car not just to fit more in the boot, but because it'll affect how others look at us, make us appear more important, make us appear more successful. Perhaps we don't uh, go to the gym and work out because we want to be healthier, but because we want people looking at us and, and perceiving us in a certain way. And so instead of asking God for it, you end up looking at those around you who already have it, and you become jealous, and it leads to conflict. So there's a, a helpful little test here in the margin of James's bigger point for us, isn't there? And that's to ask ourselves this week, are my heart's desires my prayerful petitions? Is that thing that you have spent all month thinking about and hoping for and wishing for something you've also spent all month praying for? Or is it perhaps something you might be ashamed to ask God for? Because James has told us already in the book, every perfect gift comes from above. If it's good, God wants to give it. He says, you do not get because you do not ask, and you do not get because you ask for your own sinful desires and passions. So let's ask ourselves that as we go forwards this week. Are our hearts' desires our prayerful petitions? Perhaps even that could be just something like desiring some legitimate or neutral thing too much. It occupies too big a part of of our thought life. Day in and day out, we spend our time thinking about this thing that we want not bad in itself, but really, is that our heart's desire? Or are we desiring things that we're ashamed to ask God for? Because our, our desires, and this is the heart of James's point here, our desires reveal our orientation, don't they? They reveal where we want to go. And I am sure James is thinking of, of, of the Lord when he says, where, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. What you treasure is what you're heading towards. So James says, friendship with the world is at enmity with God. And so we're at a pretty low point in the passage now, aren't we? Because James earlier in the book gave us three markers of, of pure religion, of true religion. He says three markers are that you can bridle your tongue, you visit widows and orphans and their suffering, and you stay unstained from the world. And essentially every paragraph in James' book makes clear that we in some way are failing in these areas. I imagine, like me, when we think about what we've just heard there, you feel like, goodness, what have I spent the last week wishing for? What have I spent the last week hoping and desiring? Perhaps you felt a little convicted about that. And it's super easy for us as Christians and also as preachers when we get convicted by something like this to do what I call the must-try-harder application, must just desire better things, must just work really hard in desiring better things. Conflict with other people, right, I must, just, uh, I must just try to be kinder to them, I must just try to be better, I must read my Bible more, I must pray more, I must spend less time doing that, I must try harder and, and do this. And James's whole point ultimately is that we can't do this And so we come to the five best words in the whole book. But he gives more grace. But he gives more grace. And that's the hinge of this passage tonight. And it's arguably the hinge of the whole book, actually. He gives more grace. So let's come to that last section and think about it. Sandwiched between the, the two statements God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. And humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Those bracket our last section. And James tells us a very simple pattern for what that means and how that works out. Because the solution in James' mind is not found within ourselves for these problems. It's found with the Lord. It's given by God to us. And the first thing he tells us to do is to submit ourselves Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. And that idea, we think of submission often as quite a passive thing, but that idea of submission is organizing yourself underneath something. So a a troop or a platoon would organize themselves under the commanding officer, or, or employees would organize themselves under a boss. And it doesn't necessarily mean that they get every single thing that they do from them, but they understand what the organization is doing, what the platoon is aiming for, and they work underneath it. Submit yourselves to God. Bring yourself back under God, is what James says. Because ultimately, that that fifth column within us of friendship with the world is because there's parts of our lives that we want to keep out from under God. We want to keep them to ourselves. Maybe you you have a business and you're a great Christian and your family life is wonderful and you're a wonderful father and a wonderful spiritual head of the home and a wonderful member of the church, but when it comes to your business, you're pretty cutthroat and the temporary staff get paid in cash to keep them off the books, and you just want to keep that out from under the umbrella of God. But ultimately, that's wisdom from below, isn't it? James says, submit yourselves to God. Bring your whole life under God. And then there follows a series of, of commands and statements. He says, resist the devil and he will flee from you, and draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Resist the devil. Realize that there is a spiritual source to what is going on and make that deliberate turn from that towards God. And that's such a simple statement that we, we skim over so easily. What a wonderful thing that is. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. This isn't the penitents coming up the mountain to the deity sitting at the top and hoping he'll receive them. We come towards God and he comes towards us draw near to God and he will draw near to you. And sometimes in in life we need to pause and draw ourselves near to God. We need to allow ourselves to recommit ourselves to the fellowship of his people. We need to allow ourselves to come before him in the quietness of our hearts and say, Lord, here I am, here I am. Cleanse your hands and purify your hearts, then he says. Both of those things involve removing something that shouldn't be there. Most men go through a brief stage in their life when they become diamond experts. Color cut clarity, carrot. That idea of clarity is how clear the diamond is. And what you're looking for, and any of you who need a tutorial on this later, I'm available for you is things called very slight inclusions or very, very slight inclusions. And what that means is when you look at the diamond under the microscope, there's only tiny little flecks of grit that were enfolded in the diamond when it was formed all those years ago, all the way up to internally flawless, perfectly clear. Those little impurities, though, they're what cause a problem. They're what devalue a diamond. The less pure it is, the more impurities and grit within it, the less it's worth. Similarly, with metals, isn't it? You find a nugget of gold in the river, but that little nugget or rock in your hand, that's a very, very long way from from a beautiful piece of jewelry that would go on someone's neck or on someone's finger. That gold has to be refined again and again and again and again, and the impurity slowly filtered out. And James says that's what's happening in your lives cleanse your hands, cleanse your heart that double-mindedness that he's been talking about. How do we do that? We remember we've come before the Lord in all of this, and so we say, Lord, help me, help me. Help me stop the actions, help me cleanse my hands. But Lord, help me with these attitudes within me, these desires within me. Turn them over to you, Lord. Cast myself on you and ask you to help. Then he says, Be wretched and mourn and weep. Not a lot of wretchedness in contemporary Christianity. Not a lot of mourning and weeping when we're naming and claiming our blessings either. And we often react to that because we've seen that in its extremes. We've seen people continually dragging themselves through misery. Perhaps with vague, muddy ideas of, of penance for sins, and we somehow blend them in our subconscious. And there is wonderful joy in the Christian life, but there is a place for mourning and weeping, and it is over sin. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. There comes a moment in your life, and I suspect most of us of Christians have had it more than once, probably when you're confronted with some little pocket in your life, some little area in your conscious or subconscious, some little bit of your behavior, and you realize, well, that was the wisdom from below. And you feel this brokenness in your heart. And before God, you weep about it. You mourn it. You lament it. You realize just what an issue it has become. And you say, Lord, help me. James, in conclusion, says, then humble yourself before the Lord. So he's promised that God gives grace to the humble. Politicians are great at being humble once they've been caught. And perhaps we're not so different. Perhaps we are quite able to be humble and contrite as well once we've been found out. But James doesn't say, humble yourself before the jury or humble yourself before the peers or even humble yourself when you look back at your better days. James says, humble yourself before the Lord. When we come before the Lord and we see His beauty, we see how perfectly He exhibits all of those characteristics that we were thinking about, His kindness and His gentleness and His love. And we think about the ways in which perhaps we've let him down. We say, Lord, I cast myself before you. Cast myself on your mercy. I humble myself before you. And of course, the wonderful promise of James is that the Lord doesn't leave you there in the weeping and in the lying. James says, he will lift you up. He will exalt you the Lord will lift you up. Not that passing, selfish, worldly way of exalting ourselves, but the Lord Himself will lift you up. As we close tonight, perhaps maybe you're a visitor to the church or you've been coming for a little while and your attitude to religion has been that must try harder, must try harder, Go to church more. They have two services. I should go to both of them. Must try to do less bad things. Must try to give more to charity. And perhaps you find as you're doing that that there's a surprisingly large fifth column within you that leaves you unable to do that. James assumes that the people he's writing to here understand what he means when he says God gives more grace. Those people knew, of course, that when the Lord was alive, He was taken to the cross, put to death, buried, raised again three days later in glory, and because of that, he can offer us kindness, forgiveness, peace, and relationship with him. Let's close in prayer. Lord, we confess in our own hearts the awareness that we have of our own feelings We know that despite the fact that we are your children, the wisdom from below creeps in. And so, Lord, we would submit ourselves to you. We would bring ourselves consciously under your throne. And Lord, we would ask you for more grace. We would ask for your kindness, gentleness, and mercy to us. Lord, instill in each of us, as you have promised through James to do, wisdom. Instill in us that wisdom from above and nurture in us those characteristics that it produces. Help us to create amongst each other a community of peace where a harvest of righteousness is sown for your glory in your name. Amen.